0: A little bit earlier but i think my favorite thing about house hunting having only been doing it for like two days is <laughs> the narrative the rich narratives that you like come up with for the people who aren't there yes like for the houses that are still furnished anyway yes welcome to overdue this is a
1: podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and it's different when you're like coming into a house it's empty or, into a or even re-
0: like an apartment, which I yeah. feel like usually when you're coming into an apartment, like it's empty or there's the person is more explicitly moving out. And yes. they didn't, like since they were just renting, maybe they didn't feel comfortable making it fully their own anyway. But then you come into some of these houses where people just went nuts, <laughs> like putting stuff up on the walls and coming up with crazy <laughs> furniture arrangements. Uh-huh. I don't know. There's this one house we went into to to today where all the bedrooms for their like million kids that they had were like cookie cutter gendered. Ooh. So like the boys' room had a bunch of sports trophies and a Philly Fanatic poster and a that ceiling fan with the the light part that looked like a baseball and I the fan the fan w- blades that look like baseball bats.
1: If you do get that house, can you leave that there? and let me crash in that room
0: i've gotta hope that they take it with them like
1: (laughs) i don't think you do that a condition
0: like a condition of us buying that house would be like (laughs) you have to take all your kitschy thomas kincaid nonsense (laughs) with you like go get it out of here
1: (laughs) now do you have any evidence to suggest that they don't have extremely cookie cutter children
0: I mean, maybe they just have super boring children like the little girls room is got a lot of pink stuff and it's got butterflies painted all over the walls. Like I'm not saying it's not like cute, I guess. But if you were going to build like a demo house and come up with like a fake generic boy and girl's room mm. Mm. using traditional like gender archetypes, then yes. those are the room. Those are the rooms that you would come up with. Well, and and also the bed saying... had, and also the bed in the master bedroom had, and they lived happily ever after. Painted on the Stop. wall above nope. it, nope, nope, <laughs> and it nope. was the pits.
1: No, because well, and some of those architectural elements you're talking about, that's not like a kid's choice. Like no, like ten year old boy was like, "Mom, I need the ceiling fan with the baseball on it. Like get it for yeah, me." Yeah, that
0: was like that's a parent saying, "I think you'll like this." Yes, Timmy. Timmy yes. Johnny. No four-year-old. The kid's name is Timmy Johnny. Yes. And he loves baseball.
1: <laughs> Can't wait to be the starting second baseman for no one. Mm-hmm. Timmy Johnny. So you're going to buy that house? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Saying? Yeah, Great. Let's talk about books instead, though.
0: Actually, it did have something that I thought was cool. Oh. It was a like a chalkboard wall. Part of the wall was just a chalkboard.
1: Yeah, chalkboard paint.
0: And you just can draw on it.
1: Yeah, you could do that to your... I bet. I know
0: you could do it to any place. Like I feel like now I want a chalkboard wall in whatever house we move into. Well, see that? But I don't need like the word pantry painted on the pantry door, for example. Just to like name another thing that they did to their house.
1: <laughs> Toilet this way. Yeah. Is that is that in the hallway?
0: <laughs> no. But well, it could have been missed, missed opportunity. Just have turlet painted on the wall or in the bathroom or something. That like should have been back
1: to it. That should have been over the bed, to be honest. Turlet. <laughs> oh no. You read a book this week, though. What was that book? Oh man, <laughs> it's a little late. We uh we had a busy weekend. We're gonna try and get this train a rolling. What book did you read, Andrew?
0: Okay, I read "Disgruntled," a novel by Asali Solomon.
1: Okay. Who is that? How did you hear about this book? You can answer either of those questions in whichever order you choose.
0: Sally <laughs> Solomon. Uh, she's currently an assistant professor at Haverford College. She teaches yeah. English. Um, she grew up in West Philadelphia, born and so, raised. And that she actually does make that reference on her bio page. On the Haverford College website. Which so is why I her didn't, for Yeah, that. I
1: didn't feel bad saying that because I know there, that she's yeah, already out ahead of that joke. There
0: are like some combinations of words that you, uh, like people of a certain age, hear, and then the, the Fresh Prince theme just starts playing. And you're uh-huh. <laughs> um, so this is her first novel, but she also has published several short stories and a collection of short stories called Get Down, I think. Yes. In uh, 2006. And she published a story in the winter 2013 issue of the Kenyan Review. So that's cool. Ken- Kenyan shout out. That's cool.
1: Yeah, she attended the Baldwin School for Girls out in Bryn Mawr. Uh, I think for her middle school years, maybe a little bit younger, mm-hmm. but then changed to a different high school. Uh, this is one of those books, from what I've read, and and I suppose we'll like try not to lean into this narrative too hard, but it's always it's easy to read the author's first novel that has some autobiographical elements as, like, the most autobiographical novel that they could have written. But she has kind of... She's tried to distance herself from some of that in a couple of interviews. She's had interviews with Terry Gross and her uh, page on the American Association of University Women, which is an organization I didn't know existed, but Mm -hmm. has been, uh, like, advocating for women's rights and gender equity for a really long time. So I'm happy I learned about that, but she's talking about the more dramatic things, like not being part of her life, but the the circumstances and the feelings being there.
0: Yeah. Like there, there are a lot of elements that she borrows, but I don't think for her, or at least as in like in interviews and stuff, it doesn't come off as being as serious in the book. So I'll give you one example. Um, there is a scene in the book where Kenya, who is the uh, the little girl who we get the who's like our protagonist. Sure. Um, there's a scene where her parents who are about to split up, sit her down and tell her, well, actually, we're not married and we've never been married to each other. So we can't really get a divorce like some of the kids at your school have, have talked about. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an experience that really makes her feel unmoored. And that's a theme going forward for the rest of the book is just her kind of feeling out of place this happened to solomon but it was her mom like punking her to see what she'd say
1: (laughs) that's that's kind of awesome and terrible
0: i can't decide how i feel about that that's either really good parenting or really suspect parenting yeah like just like because she's thought experiments that you run on your kids
1: man (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because she said that her mom was a feminist and a woman who used that word, you know, separately from what Solomon says. She saw a lot of women who probably would fit the bill for someone who might call themselves a feminist, but, like, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, were not aligning themselves with a movement. But she said her mother was, like, vocally such. And when she would say, oh, when I grow up and I get married, and her mom would say, if you get married. Right, yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, and I could, oh man, that's a wicked goof. I know. (laughs) As someone, as someone who has, has like had the actual discussion where your parents are breaking up Mm -hmm. and like what that is, I cannot imagine the whiplash you would get. Yeah. parent was like, and now how do you feel about that? Good. Because if that were true. I would, I would yeah. disagree with what you just said. Wait, like
0: I, yeah, like I, I just sprung what could have been the defining moment of your childhood on you. Except, wait, smile, you're on candid camera. It's not real. Didn't happen. I'm actually married to Ashton Kutcher. Oh no, That's <laughs> that would be <laughs> that would be much worse than just getting a divorce. <laughs> That's a fate worse than death.
1: Uh, she. This is Solomon. She recently returned to Philly uh, in 2010 to teach at Haverford. She had uh, gone off and she got her doctorate at UC Berkeley. She got a Master of Fine Arts at the University of Iowa. So she spent, I think, like 20 years away from Philadelphia. Um, and as someone from the area, I always, you know, we get our as a city with a chip on our shoulder. There's always like a lot of. Any excuse for hometown pride is fun. Yeah, sure. You know
0: the precious few excuses that you can scrape together. Yes, well, and you and, just hang <laughs> on
1: to like a dying person, and maybe, and we'll probably talk about it in this book. We take pride in people who artfully criticize Philly. We take a lot of pride in that okay, we, if anybody's going to tear us down, it better be
0: people from from our own city that's like new jersey's whole thing so that's true that's i don't true. think philly can that's not exclu- unique to our city it's like we i not. mean we all have like these complexes related to new york city and we all deal with it in our own ways
1: that's like yeah that i mean what you just said is like that's pretty world. much it yeah yeah <laughs> uh we can start talking about the the book if you'd like
0: sure i would like
1: i would like also what is the book actually
0: about so let's run down the plot real quick and then we'll get into the themes because this is this is a something Solomon does is she takes a lot of really complex issues, like not just stuff about race and stuff about gender, but also stuff about family and she like breaks it down into what is essentially a coming of age novel that's that takes a lot of really complicated concepts and makes them digestible and okay. understandable. uh so this is uh, kenya the protagonist is i think just a few years older than us sure yeah um so she's coming up in the late 80s and into the 90s like a lot of the cultural references she talks about like watching inspector gadget as a kid like that's that's stuff that we can more or less relate to i watched
1: inspector gadget as a kid boom ba-dum ba-dum boom 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 ba-dum
0: yeah i know the inspector gadget song craig thanks what was
1: what was his niece's name (laughs)
0: Penny and she had a dog, Brain. Good work. Or Brian. (laughs) I don't remember if it was Brain or Brian. I think
1: it was (laughs) Brain. It's okay. So Kenya lives in Philadelphia,
0: in West Philly, and uh, she is being raised by her parents, Sheila and John Brown. John Brown is all one word. He used to just be John, but around the same time, he got kicked out of college. For trying to like take over an administration building, okay, start going by john Brown um so they are you know they're they're raising Kenya and they are for lack of a better word, like a little more radical than a lot of the other black parents like there are there are a bunch of different kinds of black people in this book, but two big kinds is like like one is the let's try to get along and just make things better for black people. Working within the established system, kind of people, mm-hmm. and then the other kind of people are like the maybe we should just burn it all down. Black people, and her okay. parents are part of the latter group. So like they don't eat pork, they celebrate Kwanzaa. It's it's stuff that this there are elements of um of Solomon's real childhood in here, and those are those are a couple of them. And so, so are they
1: are they nationalists? Are they like celebrating? African heritage and it's yeah to your point it's not just like I am a black american but like I am celebrating where I where I came from
0: Well just to to give you some context like John Brown will apparently go off on tears about how Martin Luther King Jr is overrated Okay all <laughs> like right like he wasn't he wasn't radical enough Fair enough yeah and he, okay. yeah so um so even like Compared to the other black people who she goes to school with, like she's she's set apart a little bit and she gets called names. And and yeah, so already, though, she doesn't quite realize it yet. She's already kind of set apart from these kids. And that feeling grows stronger when, as we talked about, her parents get not divorced, but they separate. Because John Brown who doesn't really work because he's working on this like complex philosophical work that he thinks is going to blow racism up. Okay. Um, he cheats on Sheila, um, Kenya's huh. mom with another woman and gets her pregnant and then they run off. Um, there's a subplot with Kenya like sleepwalking that I want to mention, but I don't want to get too far into cause it's not, it's not crucial to the plot, but it is used like effectively. In a few different places, so is I don't want to—I don't want to like ruin that for people who read the book because like spoiling it is not essential to our discussion. But it—but it,
1: it allows it allows Solomon to get to some other stuff in the book. Yeah, 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 it's
0: it's it it's a big like touchstone moment with her with like her relationship to her mom and her dad, and it's, okay, it's important. But I don't want to—I don't want to ruin it. So
1: cool. Um That's very kind of you.
0: Yeah, I know, right? So She's so generous. So Sheila and Kenya move out and shortly afterward, John Brown's mother passes away. Mm. Um and Sheila had like maintained a relationship with John Brown's mother, even though John Brown didn't like his mother. So this is this is one racial component that gets brought up is like how do you relate to being black? Like like I mentioned before, like what kind of what what kind of attitude do you have about your own race? Yeah. And so Sheila like was came up from the projects and so her whole life has been like, okay, I gotta like I gotta move up from here. And so she's she's kind of achieved that by moving out of the projects and having a you know, a steady job at a library and and, you know, working her way up through the established system, I guess for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. Um, John Brown came from a more middle class family, and so I guess he feels like he has something to prove a little bit more. Like if he's talking about the community or the cause, sure, um, of black people. So that that's kind of driven him to become a little more radicalized, I think,
1: because he did not have to fight just to get a seat at the table. Like he not did necessarily.
0: Not... I mean, I mean, definitely, he's still a black person. In, oh no sorry and yes, like yes, yes. and everybody everywhere is hella racist so well there's it's yes. not like things are great for him but he did but, not
1: he did not have to climb the same economic ladder that she did to even get where they are is what you No,
0: and i think and i think because he grew up maybe in a little more a bit more of a privileged position he had more opportunity to see that like quote-unquote good white people are still pretty bad and racist OK, in a lot of ways, even without like intending to be. So anyway, all of that is to establish that John Brown and his mother are estranged because his mother basically doesn't know why he can't just get along. Mm. And he is like, why would I want to just get along in this system? Why that is that I enough? Yeah. And is broken. Yeah, whatever. Um. So John Brown's mother passes away, leaves Kenya and Sheila with a pretty nice house that's all the way paid off. Um, enough money to keep Kenya in her new, private, mostly white girl school that she started going to since they moved out into the suburbs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then Sheila takes up with this guy named Teddy Jaffrey, who follows, I think, what is kind of the standard bad stepdad stepdad archetype. Okay. Um, so he comes around. Uh, Sheila is enamored with him. Kenya is sort of nothing with him. And then he gradually reveals his true crappy character to the daughter, um and then eventually later, the mom finds out about his true crappy character, huh later, and then they split up so okay yeah if you if you're gonna write down like this the step by step the bad stuff that happens with a crappy stepdad like this is the this is it those
1: are the things that will happen. These are the steps.
0: Yeah, this should be like a book step step by step guide to being a good stepdad. Kenya is at this all white girl school, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more later, Mm -hmm. Um, grows up. You follow her from, you know, from the age of like five or six ish, I think, maybe to when she's graduated high school. Okay. Um, her her dad has not really contacted her a whole lot in the intervening years But when she's done with high school, before she's going to go to college, she, you know, contacts John Brown and like goes out to live with him for a little bit and just like spend time with him. And he's living on this farm out in the middle of nowhere with the woman who he ran away with and their daughter and also this other like white lady and their two kids. And it's just this big like polyamorous hippie dippy kind of commune thing. That that they're just like pretending uh, is pretending is totally fine. And but like, is, how does she
1: feel about that when she gets there? She
0: doesn't feel great about. It. I mean, she does have a a genuine connection, I think, with her half sister. Okay. So the one who, and and it's 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 mostly a shared connection because they have both. They both like know their dad. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And they both kind of know his character and like how he can be under this under this controlled kind of together surface that he presents to the rest of the world. So like he's, he seems like he's calmer and that he's happier and that he's kind of just doing what he wants out here. But then it comes to light that like nothing really has changed. He's relying on his white, not wife, like the mother of his half white kids, like to, to her parents are like supplying the money for a lot of this stuff.
1: Okay, so he's, take, like, so he's, he's taking still, advantage so of the he's situation. Still, yeah,
0: he's still kind of, I guess, sponging, for lack of a better word.
1: I'm wondering, does this guy that lives in this commune jive with the same dude who was her dad, who was more militant, was uh, a nationalist, was I don't want to get along with the system like, it yeah, seems I mean, like he more, was more of a firebrand before, and...
0: I mean, he... Okay, so he was kind of a firebrand before, but he was still a lot more talk than he was action. Like, the okay. most extreme thing he ever actually did was, like, tag some police stations while the woman he ended up running off with, like, stood lookout. Okay. So, maybe... Um, so, like, he'd been he'd been arrested ever, but the... I don't know, like, some, some of the times when he got arrested, like, he could he could invoke his fairly respectable like middle class parents and get off a little bit easier than maybe he would have if he was just some you know some hoodlum whatever mhm mm-hmm. so like he he's still the same guy like he's still kind of living off the grid outside the system but also doing it in this way where he's sponging off of like he's he's i don't even know if taking advantage is the right word but kind of he is kind of taking advantage of something like someone else's largesse, certainly. So certainly. it used to, so it used to be their mother, and now it's this white lady who's had two of his kids.
1: Okay, and, and what's the age difference between uh, his kids with her and Kenya?
0: Kenya nineteen by this point, and I I don't think it gives a age for his you know her half sister the one she forms the connection with but i think she's meant to be like 13ish okay it's not like she's like years. 7 or something No like no that. no and okay. then the two the two like other kids the twins are like 4 okay okay and they're both spoiled and awful so why did <laughs> she no connection. why
1: did she go stay with him
0: she goes to stay with him because i don't know because she's she's still got this like he's my dad thing, where, okay. like, like for a long time she, I guess, sort of idolized him or missed him, and thought, and like missed their family, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. still had this, this not quite fully aware of the stuff that he did to her mom and to them. Sure, like that's that's stuff that she kind of needs to have her eyes open to a little bit more later. And this is post bad stepdad. This is post Teddy. This is after that. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, This that happens when Kenya herself is is in like sixth or seventh grade. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so middle not middle school, but like junior high and into high school.
1: So this is on the step to her doing what now? Because this is.
0: I mean, she was meant to go to college. So while she's hanging out at this at this farm, like part of what makes all these old tensions rise back up is that Sheila calls Kenya. And says, Teddy was a scam artist, and he went into business with a scam artist, and he's bankrupt, and I'm bankrupt, and we're bankrupt, and we can't send you to college anymore. So, oh. is in this position where she has to ask her dad for money, and her dad is like, well, it's not so much whether I can give you money, but like whether my white sort of girlfriend's rich parents can give you money.
1: Oh, no. That's a tangled web. And that, That's a tangled web, John. Yeah,
0: that like that prompts the the confrontation that that brings that whole relationship like finally and I think probably irreparably crashing down. I would imagine is just this thing where he presents this this front and then he's and then he's just I don't know. He's still he's still working on the the, the book called The Key. I think I mentioned the name before, where he's trying to come up with this like philosophical. Thing about the shame of being alive. Okay,
1: yeah, that's which is a a phrase phrase that comes up
0: over and over in the book. Mm -hmm. And the shame of being alive, like it's hard to nail down specifically what it is, but it's like in large part it's just like the shame of being a black person in American society. So like here's yeah. Like, the shame of being alive was, in fact, the shame of being black and having a mere 10 minutes to untangle your hair in the locker room after swimming. And some day she heard his voice saying, meanwhile, some kids in West Philly don't have books. It's it's like that. Hmm. I don't know. Like, she's she's at this little white girl private school and, like, arguably doing okay while other people don't have it so great. But also she's she doesn't really feel in place here like she feels like an outsider so it's just a lot of different sources of of tension and of shame yeah to I was, be like grappling with all at I, once I was you know?
1: reading that seemed to be where the title of the book came from disgruntled in that like the grievances that she's dealing with in that regard she's walking this fine line between like things that are truly awful and reprehensible. And things that are like, all things considered, maybe it's not the worst, but given like over time, just the sum total of them are terrible. Mm -hmm. Like the marginalization that adds up over time can be or could be just as bad as all like any one awful thing that might happen to someone because of systemic poverty or something like
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's another phrase that comes up a couple times where John Brown, in one instance, is talking about it with her like, oh, it must. what must it have been like to be a slave or something like mm-hmm. you're they, they're facing this reality where, yeah, they're not slaves anymore, but also stuff still sucks in a lot of ways that are harder to nail down than. Slavery was like I think, and I think that's a big thing with how like racism and sexism works now is like less frequently. I'm not going to say it never happens because it definitely still happens, especially on the internet, which is terrible and it's a big toilet that everybody. It's a turlet, yeah. It's a turlet. <laughs> but like, it's it's in like quote unquote polite society. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Like, I'll, I don't know if there are any good terms for any of this stuff. It's um, it's less. You're not going to run into like Klansmen at your job at, at the office.
1: <laughs> no, not
0: usually. Depends not on usually, what office you work at, I there's, suppose. But there's still going to be a lot of racist, like subtle stuff that's harder to complain mm-hmm. about because it gets into, oh, can't you just take a joke? Or, oh, I didn't mean that. I'm not a racist. Like, you know what I mean?
1: Well, and there was something that came up the other day in the Supreme Court that's like, Tangentially tied to mass incarceration, and it's whether or not you can, you know, what are the standards for arresting someone with priors, and how that leads to systemic abuse in police systems that may or may not be racially biased. Like most of them are, which is unfortunate, and there are a lot of reasons for why a system like that will perpetuate itself. But like mass incarceration is the big thing, and yet. It's hard to nail down any... There's not one cause for that, right? It's not like you pass one law and that goes away. Yeah. Uh, And yet, that is replacing overt systems of injustice like slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, And to your point, yeah, it's harder to fight. It's harder to put... It's harder to
0: convince people that it's even a thing, you know?
1: Yes, yes, certainly.
0: That's the rough part. I don't know. Part of the reason why... I maybe find myself having a little bit more trouble discussing this book is do you remember like months and months and months ago we got this email from um, Saren who is one of our listeners and our Patreon uh-huh. donors and she was listening she's been listening to the show forever and I know that she still listens because <laughs> I still see her like coming up on Twitter and 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 stuff a lot of the time mm-hmm. and she was telling us like when we talk about like issues of race I think especially certainly we just sound uncomfortable yes, because we're trying to be careful about it. And that's not, it's not wrong. And I still feel myself (laughs) like doing that now. Uh Uh-huh. And that, that email, like particularly as I've been reading this book has just really been, sticking out in my mind because these aren't always issues that we discuss on the show. And because we're a couple of white boys, like we don't have like as much context yes. for the stuff like in practice as we do, like just reading about it and like knowing about it.
1: Which is actually, I felt like I, we didn't have this same moment when we talked about beloved, I think because beloved was set in the past and there was a little bit there was a historical grounding to it that made it easier to like let me just talk about this time and this yeah, place like and it what doesn't, these characters are going through. And it doesn't
0: throw us into the into the modern era of like microaggressions and all the like the harder to define, harder to pin down stuff. It's it's much closer to to racism as a as a thing that we can make ourselves believe doesn't exist anymore kind of thing. Yeah. If that makes sense.
1: Do you have any passages in this book? Because this book was written in what? 2014, 2015, 2015? published in 2015.
0: Like the reason I bring that email up is because I, I mean, I really want to drive this home is Solomon is really successful in outlining these concepts. Sure. And making them like understandable, especially to an audience who I don't, who might not have like all the context for understanding them, and so there's like a lot of this you get when um, when Kenya's at her school where she is like one of two black girls in her grade. She doesn't even like the other girl very much, but finds herself like kind of in a little clique with her and a couple other girls, like by default, just by inertia mm-hmm. and by the fact you know because other girls don't go out of their way to like associate with her. And then, you know, they ask her questions about what living in the city is like. And they heard all the kids take knives to school and that people oh, get man. like shot all the time. And it's like they're in fifth grade or whatever at this point. So like a lot of those questions are not going to be coming from a bad place yet. Necessarily they're just, they're yeah. Necessarily. They're just they're just maybe coming from this this place where you have these understandings of this area that you picked up from maybe your parents or from TV or whatever. And Mm -hmm. like, you don't have, there's no malice there yet, but then that stuff grows into more hardened prejudice. That's like harder to do something about as you get older. And as those assumptions like stay unchallenged for years and years, unless you
1: run against a thing, like an example, a person, a situation that runs contrary to your assumptions, you will go through your teenage years just thinking that that's what it is. Yeah. And, and that, that'll entrench that stuff. It sounds like you have an example ready to go.
0: Yeah, uh, The fifth graders who attended the Barrett School for Girls had heard a lot of crazy things about the city. They'd heard that kids their age carried knives to school and that everyone was on welfare. They'd heard that being on the street after dark was a sure way to get mugged. They'd never heard the one about the family where the father was cheating on the mother, the father not husband because they were never married, the one where the father suggested that they all live together in a polygamous arrangement. <laughs> Point being, they've heard this stuff and it's probably not all true and then also they haven't heard the very real like individual stories that are actually what people there are going through
1: yeah i was hoping you would say that cuz that's ex- that's exactly what
0: she's going for um hmm. yeah so she just she's solomon as a writer is just really good at at drawing that stuff out and and just really really putting you where Kenya is, like, in the shoes of a young girl who is beginning to understand this, like, broader, more systemic racism and is, like, trying to grapple with it. While at the same time grappling with her family situation, grappling with, like, normal teen growing up issues.
1: How does it handle, does it do anything else with family that we haven't talked about? Because I feel like that can inform discussion of these issues based on what your support network is. Or what it what is or is not available to you based on who your family
0: is? have we covered all yeah, that I mean, stuff in this in this circumstance, the family stuff is yeah, it's a way for her not to have a a safe spot or a spot where she feels like she belongs because yeah, her family yeah. her family situation has been in flux. For as long as she can remember and even back when she remembers it being more stable it wasn't what she thought it was because her parents Mm -hmm. weren't actually like married to each other. And so there's this whole thing where one of her friends at school had parents who were getting divorced and Kenya remembers like consoling her in sort of a bland way while simultaneously thinking with not a hint of smugness. Um, that her parents, that would never happen to her parents. Her parents would never get divorced. Ugh. And I think I've, I don't know, like as, as a child of divorce yourself, like, I don't know if you've had experiences like that, where maybe you knew somebody whose parents had split up before yours and you just thought that that would never happen. I mean, I know that I just assumed that it never would happen for my parents and it didn't, but.
1: I I will say I didn't, I learned twofold. Like I learned uh, in two steps what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. Like I remember more distinctly the moment where my dad told me he was moving out. I also then remember the moment maybe two or three years later where I learned that there was adultery. Like, (laughs) and so, and like, that's a very different thing, right? When you're like, eight or nine and it's like oh well i guess that doesn't that didn't work out that's everyone's sad right
0: they call it adultery because you have to be an adult before you can hear about it (laughs) they put it right there in the word so people would know that you're not supposed to tell kids about it
1: (laughs) i i don't have a response i gotta let you just have that one that
0: was (laughs) thanks
1: but you get a couple years older, and you're like, oh, this is a thing that, like, isn't, it's not just a blanket sad event, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, now it's people were hurt and people were making choices that caused other people to get hurt. And I don't, I'm not old enough yet to understand why those choices were made. Like, that will come even more later from now, you know. um, It's, it's not a, like. And here's the before time and here's the after time. Um, mm-hmm. I did have friends who whose parents were not together. So I I had a schema for that.
0: Um, I think, again, that's I don't, it's not like ex- people in the 80s and 90s don't have a monopoly on that. But I think that is the time when that sort of thing began to become socially acceptable enough that that fewer people were staying married just just to stay married, like just for the appearances of it. Like they may have like a couple decades before.
1: Yeah. I feel like there was a time around the turn of the millennium where the number of news articles about marriage rates and divorce rates, those, the number of those articles started to decline. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, we were, at, we were hovering around 50% there for a while. And then it like things started to tip and we didn't want to talk about it anymore because enough people <laughs> just knew what was up.
0: Yeah, the family stuff is just it's yeah, it's a backdrop for her not just just not having a place to be. And the and the way the book ends so after she has that final falling out with her dad, she goes back to Philly. She doesn't have the money to go to college. She's still mad at her mom. Mm-hmm. So she ends up sort of couch surfing a little bit with um one of her friends. His name is Commodore and he so there the when um, Kenya lived with her parents, there was this uh, this little clique of black radicalish people who would get together and talk, mm-hmm. and they were called the yeah, the Seven Days is the name of the group. Okay, she felt apart from the kids at school, but Commodore's parents were in the Seven Days group too, and so they got each other. And then they, you know, they don't see each other for a few years because Sheila and Kenya leave, but then Kenya and Commodore meet up again and Kenya can kind of talk about that stuff in a way that she absolutely can't with anybody else because he was there too. And so he like gets it in a Mm -hmm, way that, in mm -hmm. a way that nobody else can. And so she, she digs him and like wants a romantic thing to happen. Like even before she knows that she wants it to happen, she wants it to happen.
1: Is this the first like such thread of this in the book? Is this like the main, this is the main romantic romantic thing
0: for her. Okay. It never really ends up going anywhere because he's obsessed with white girls. Okay. Which is like the interracial dating is a whole another little thread in the book that I don't think we'll have too much time to pull at, but basically like her mom doesn't want her to date any white guys. And I can like see why. Like white guys just as a group are not we're not great.
1: <laughs> no. And we uh, this book is set in the 80s and I don't think we've gotten any better. If we have if we may have gotten worse. Um I think we're the same. <laughs> That's what I don't. Know. Anyway, she's she's no. Been we're probably discouraged. Worse. I, I yeah. retract my
0: previous statement. Anyway,
1: <laughs> she's been discouraged from dating white guys. Commodores into white girls, but she's into Commodore.
0: She's into Commodore, and she ends up staying with him and his roommate. And like Commodore not interested in her, but his white roommate sort of is, and so they have like a weird almost relationship thing but oh actually he was a drug dealer who hid like a felony amount of weed in her room Mm. and they get like raided and so she ends up going to the police station at this point her mother had filed like a missing persons report because she hadn't heard from her and didn't know where she was and so the book ends with Sheila and Kenya back in their original house which Mm -hmm. they're renting for cheap because Sheila like Like the person who owns the property and is renting it was like a friend of John Brown's mom, okay, or something. And the book ends on sort of a hopeful note, where like, and this is this is after Sheila realizes that that her new husband Teddy was a scumbag, yeah, yeah, and they are getting divorced. So there's a there's this optimistic note where like, okay, having gone through all these bad experiences, you know, now that. Kenya's had her eyes really opened about her dad like maybe they can find common ground and like make this place where they belong and can talk to each other and relate to each other yeah and they'll and they'll like their circumstances aren't great but like they'll figure it out
1: so like they don't find the home or like the explicit place where she belongs but they are equipped to build one
0: yeah yeah because for a long time Kenya was just not feeling like she could talk to her mom about stuff. Like there's this sequence where she says Kenya is thinking like she doesn't have anything to say to her mom. But if she did have something to say, she'd be afraid that her mom just wouldn't be able to hear her Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because her mom at this point was like so smitten with with Teddy. And yeah, it was it was a rough thing for her. And her mom was also like she was consorting with the parents at this all white girls school and so she's sort of doing she's like perming her hair and straightening it she's doing these subtle she's like redecorating the house she's doing these things that Kenya kind of feels like are leaving behind like the old way of life so they used to be in this in this more radicalized group and now Sheila's doing stuff that the group of people who just want to be seen as valuable in the eyes of white people like the stuff that they are doing
1: yeah and is kenya questioning like do you even need to do that or is she causing more harm by doing that
0: i mean if anything i think kenya i don't know if kenya would see it as a betrayal but it does seem like her mom is just not being herself mm-hmm. which is hard it, like it it introduces a rift in that relationship Mm -hmm. and um yeah like her her mom for a while is like like doing doing stuff like redecorating the house while also like if Kenya ever like talks like the girls at school or like is worried about the stuff that the white girls at school are worried about like she gets made fun of a little bit like there's one sequence where um where Kenya like talks back the way that she's heard some of these bratty white girls talk back to their moms and Uh-oh. Sheila Sheila is like don't do that
1: <laughs> maybe we don't do like, that
0: even as she is doing this this stuff like straightening her hair and and huh. sort of trying to trying to assimilate into like wh- a whiter culture herself yeah if that makes sense
1: yeah no and and that relationship sounds like it has analogs in a variety of worlds and walks of life and it sounds like Solomon is finding some really skillful ways to weave that into these larger themes like Mm -hmm. you know that that moment where you witness a parent betraying is a strong word but a parent being inconsistent or a parent uh, not living up to the image that maybe they've even crafted for yeah. you.
0: Yeah, like so much of the familial stuff is really familiar because, like, I think I, it's pretty universal. I don't, I don't, it's pretty universal. I think a lot of kids have that moment or those moments where they slowly begin to realize that their parents are people and not superheroes. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. we may have talked about that a bit on the show before, but yeah, um, something Solomon is really good at is using. Like incredibly specific stuff. Okay. To like talk about these bigger, these bigger problems. So that goes for both like familial stuff and race stuff. And yeah. Sure. And then the uh, other thing, like, I know this show's been pretty like heavy so far. Okay. But it's all, this book is also really funny in parts.
1: I did want to ask you just like a little bit more about who Kenya is or about Solomon's voice as a writer. Cause, clearly you you're getting a lot out of the book and it's and it seems like it's been a pretty enjoyable read so like what headspace are you in who are you digging like who is it fun to spend time with
0: yeah I mean it's it's I'm I I worry that now that I'm making it sound like it's this big like heavy intellectual slog the whole time (laughs) and like anybody who picks it up is gonna be like overwhelmed by guilt and have to put it down like after 10 pages that's absolutely not what she's doing and Kenya's point of view is just, like, fractured enough, but also, like, just familiar enough to, like, 80s and 90s kids. Sure. That you that you really feel, I don't know, there are, there are a lot of, like, common cultural touchstones. So here's something. Uh, this is where uh, Teddy Jeffrey is coming over to see her mom, and she's not sure if Kenya's not sure if it's a date yet, but she has a sneaking suspicion that it might be. He did not look like Billy D Williams and certainly did not have Billy D Williams's suspicious hair texture. Yet yeah, he made Kenya think of Billy D Williams as he stood in the foyer holding pink flowers that seemed anxious to die. <laughs> that's and it's just awesome. like there's so many little lines like that that's the really just flowers that seemed anxious to die is just so good. It's it evokes such a spe- specific image of crappy flowers that somebody yep. might bring over to something that he's not sure whether it's a date or not.
1: <laughs> well, and like the color's good. Cause it's a little insipid and it's not fully committing to like red romance, but it's pretty in an arbitrary way. Mm-hmm. That's a good image. It's It sounds like she's certainly translated some of the skills from her short story background into how she's rendering this stuff.
0: Yeah. The, the tone is, is light enough often enough that it makes it a really, it's a, it's a really easy book to read despite like the weight of the stuff that it's dealing with. Okay. So.
1: Um, anything else interesting that struck you or that you feel like you like, I don't like, what did you learn from the book? Sounds a little pedantic, but um, things you hadn't come across before.
0: I don't want to say that I learned anything because I think all the stuff that, that, The book really drives home is stuff that I knew on, on whatever level. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the most interesting stuff is how she uses Kenya's relationships with other people to, to like really drive home. Like, okay, so black people get lumped together a lot. Like even when we're talking about black people, we're lumping them together a lot. Like whether we intend to be doing that or not. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, we don't have an idea of their specific circumstances. And so there's this there's this new girl at school who has said that she is adopted and half black. OK. And so it's her and Kenya and then the other black girl in her grade. And uh, Kenya continues to study the new girl for signs of blackness. Someday she thought she saw them. She realized she finally believed her when she found herself wondering at the fact that she, Lolly and Debbie all belong to the same anything at all race she thought race 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 until the word became strange uh, yeah so, like they're just people mm-hmm and they're all different mm-hmm and like a lot of the time just putting all these people together in a big bucket is not like helpful
1: well and it's it's certainly problematic when especially in like the political cycle we're in when you talk about minority voters or minority demographics because like that's not you can't just lump people of disparate backgrounds into one big clump like that like that's disingenuous and not helpful to the actual concerns of any one
0: group right. right yeah like it's i think it's the most egregious when we're talking about like oh the percentage of black vote voters the percentage of white voters like these big old buckets where you're trying to guess these big trends based on how these big groups of people vote and you're just it's impossible for you to to know what motives every single person had when they were casting their vote for whoever and like maybe everybody averages out enough that you can use those to model some stuff but man it just it seems like a really not helpful way to talk about things
1: no and that's why something like this book and and Solomon's work is really important or could be very important to someone. Um, She was talking about this book. She's trying to summarize it. uh, And she was referencing a Tolstoy quote that says all great literature is one of two stories. A man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. And Solomon said that her book is a stranger comes to town and the stranger is you. (laughs) (laughs) Like you are, you don't fit anywhere, which is what we've been talking about a lot in this book. Yeah. It's reminding me of a Sherman Alexie book I read a couple of months ago called The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. And it's a, it's a boy who goes to high school uh, off the reservation. It's an all-white high school. And that in-between spot that he finds uh, where his family and his friends on the reservation have, you know, they certainly do not appreciate that he left and went to the all white school. And now he is the only non white kid at that white school now. Um, and how that doesn't sound like a great situation for anyone. (laughs) And how do you navigate that? And how do you navigate those kind of internal?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Divisions, right. These, these stories of like not belonging come into the public consciousness. The most often when we're talking about, um, like mixed race families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you get these stories about like, oh, uh, you know, your mom comes to pick you up and they think you're the babysitter or they won't let you have the kid because they don't trust that you're the kid's parent or whatever. Like it's all this stuff where like if if you were all one way or all the other, you might have like a community, quote unquote, yeah. that you could turn to. But if you're in between somewhere, then none of the, quote unquote, communities will have you and you just get kind of lost in the shuffle and you have to figure out for yourself, like what, what y- community you belong to, like what place you, you are comfortable in. Yeah. And it's I was not think- easy. Like, no, and I
1: was thinking about that false binary earlier when we were talking about like hard to articulate forms of racism and kind of the like spectrum that it is, because there is that myth that it's just, well, do you hate people that are different or don't you like, that's not, <laughs> that's actually not what it is uh not any certainly not anymore and it's way more complicated than that and similarly there's a lot of really good literature on how race itself is not a binary thing yeah like there are there are very different lots of different ways and and you know you can argue that maybe it shouldn't be a a construct at all but i don't know yeah
0: so i mean like i i hope the show wasn't too heavy i hope it makes you want to read the book instead of not reading it because it really is like it's a really great like coming of age novel and that also happens to have a bunch of other stuff that it's doing yes and it's just it's it's a really it's really easy to read it's really fun to read it's a good teen girl novel yeah yeah absolutely i'm not that doesn't mean it's for teen girls it's just like here's a book about a teen girl going through teen girl things and then also like seven other things (laughs)
1: Was it fun to live in the 90s for a little bit there?
0: Yeah, it was pretty good. I mean, th- the years come up like it's it's just a thing where there aren't smartphones and yeah, there aren't smartphones and there is like inspector gadget. So <laughs> those are the those are the points you have to like more yourself in time in this book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um yeah, I just I, I hope that the conversation for you, the listener, was not like too nervous or tentative or anything. I mean, it's something we're still working on, and the only way we're gonna get better at it is to keep reading and keep talking.
1: So, yeah, yeah. So if you want to talk to us, one way to do it is to email us at overduepod at gmail dot com. We're still getting in emails of like really gross books that people have read (laughs) uh i don't i don't like we can't devote 15 minutes to every show about it i'll just say that stephanie wrote in something about chicken scissors that i don't want to ever find out more information about Uh, i want to thank annie and uh lissy and sandra and leanne and rebecca and erica all for writing us in via that email address this week thank you so much uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Overdue Pod. We got a lot of people sending clowns to Andrew this past week.
0: On Facebook, thanks for all <laughs> yep. the
1: clowns. Uh, Melissa started an awesome thread where a whole bunch of people sending clowns. So I want to thank everyone on social media. That's Monica, Catherine, Aaron, Sophie, uh, the Kenyan Classics Department, uh, Emma, Mr. <laughs> J, uh, Susan. Bunbury, Alex, Bailey, Mike, Amanda, another Catherine, Erica, Bree, Albie, Philip, Sarah, Anna, Tara, and of course, Melissa. Uh, thanks so much. Andrew, if they wanted to find out more about the show, where would they go?
0: They would go to overduepodcast.com where we have links to iTunes, Stitcher, and RSS. Those are the three main feeds you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop on Monday. Um, We've also got our bonus episode with Sophie Brookover of Two Bossy Dames. Uh, She read Renata Adler's Speedboat, and uh, that was Mm -hmm. a really fun episode. If you support us on Patreon, of course, you've already listened to that episode already. To find out more, you can either follow the Patreon link on our website or go to patreon.com slash overdue pod. It's a way to support us financially if you think that the words that we say with our mouths are worth money. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a thing you have to do, but it's a thing you can do. Uh Uh-huh. Um, what else do we have up there? We have links to HeadGum, our podcast network. Thank you t- to them, as always, for having us. To Spreaker, our podcast host, who makes it possible for you to download this nonsense every Monday. And uh, Craig, what are you reading next week? I don't know. Well, figure it out. Uh, I will. We'll put, we'll put it up on the website as soon as we know. Great. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see you guys next Monday. And until then, try to be happy, please. <laughs>